Welcome to the very first episode of Jeff's Journey to Clarity with Jeffrey Rana. The Adidas podcast to promote reason, evidence, liberty, and skepticism. If you want to support this podcast, consider subscribing and leaving a review on where you get your podcasts, subscribing like on YouTube, and if you are so inclined, consider making a one-time donation in the link below. My guest today is one of my heroes and influencers. Today is Brian Cap. Uh, today I have Brian Kaplan. He's a professor of economics at George Mason University and a New York Times bestselling author. He's written books such as The Myth of Rational Voters, Self Which Reason to Have More Kids, The Case Against Education, Open Borders, and most recently, You Will Not Stampede Me, Essays on Unconformism. Ryan, how are you? Doing fantastic. Great to see you again, Jeffrey. Yeah, great to see you. Yeah, last time I uh, we saw each other, I was getting cut off by two people in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, your book, You Will Not Stampede Me, um, I think I know the answer to the question already of considering why you were... Like considering that you're a well-known contrarian, and then the most recent major topic you've gone against is that one of the major topics you've gone against COVID protocols. But I guess what inspired you to publish this book essays? I mean, the real answer is that I had 18 years worth of blog posts, which generally don't get read by people because it's unusual to go through 18 years of posts and read everything. And then I got the idea, well, what if I would go and take my best 5% posts and turn them into books of essays? I actually got some free copies of some less wrong blog posts where they had handpicked their best things and put them into a physical books. And I liked the idea. So I just went through 18 years worth of posts and picked out the 5% best. And then I went and organized them by topic. And I realized I've got a lot of stuff on marching to the beat of my own drummer. So these are, this is the fifth volume of the series. And these are all of the essays that have something to do with nonconformism, which by the way, I would distinguish from contrarianism. I think of contrarianism is just, I disagree with other people to disagree. Nonconformism is more of, I'm going to go and do what I think is best after having considered the evidence, even if it's unpopular, but not because it's unpopular. Right. So you dedicated books to Robert Hansen, who's a well-known nonconformist. Um, uh, what's your favorite like hot take from him, I guess? So Robin is my best friend in the world, first of all. So my, and I've known him for 25 years now. I guess the main thing I would say about Robin is he makes a lot of people angry. And if they actually had any idea what kind of a person he was, they would have to be terrible people to be angry because Robin is not trying to upset anyone. You know, I think of you know, Robin is like a child, an innocent child who asks questions and calls it like he sees it, but he's not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. You know, even if you think that he is, it's just because he doesn't know the right way to communicate in a way that will say what he wants to say without upsetting people. But he's definitely not trying to. Robin is just one of the most decent, sweetest people I have ever met. And he's the kind of person where you say, what's his big character flaw? I would say he's the kind of person in Saving Private Ryan who would go and let the German soldiers go because he should feel sorry for them, even though they're going to go and report on you and get you killed. That's the kind of person he is. He would just feel sorry for people and say, well, they probably won't do anything. Like, Robin, we got to kill these guys. Sorry. And he would just say, no, I don't want... That's him. <laughs> I guess, uh, what's your favorite idea that he's produced? Hmm. Probably, you know, the one that he's changed me the most on is betting. Because before I met him, I really just didn't think about betting and didn't think about putting money or trying to define clearly what a disagreement is. And he really did inspire me. I now have a long record of public bets. I have so far won 23 out of the 23 bets that have come to fruition. 
without him, it never would have occurred to me. Uh, he takes these ideas of betting very broadly. So he's also come up with ways of redesigning institutions around betting. Uh, there's like one of the ones that is easiest to understand is he has a proposal for fire the CEO markets where betting markets estimate what the value of a company stock would be if you just got rid of the, the current CEO and found a replacement. And his proposal is not only should you create those markets, but if the market ever says that the current CEO is dragging down the value of the company, he just gets fired instantly. Right. He also has a proposal for a whole new system government called Futarchy, which is really a bigger version of this fire the CEO market. So I say these are the ideas that he's had that have had the most influence on me. Um, but also probably the biggest total influence is just on the way that I think and talk. We have lunch more days than we don't. And we really are on the same wavelength in terms of what kinds of evidence and arguments really counts and what what it means to face a question and to face some evidence and what it means just to dodge a question. And we're not question dodgers, we're question facers. Hmm. Right. So in the first essay, you will not stampede me. Uh, you say society has uh, two steps in response to public crises. Uh, what are these society's uh, steps in response to public crises? You need to remind me, Jeffrey. <laughs> Can you read my own words back to me? What are those two um, steps? Those two, well, the two responses are hysteria and hurting. Ah, hysteria and hurting, of course. Yeah, so whenever there's any major problem, first is for people to freak out. Oh my God, no. And then the next is hurting. Like we've all got to agree on the same thing. Anyone who says anything else actually favors the problem or is evil or is some victim of misinformation. I mean, just take two days ago, there's an airplane accident, which all historical experience says is an absolute fluke. It does not make sense to go and mess up an entire industry for a couple of days based upon one extremely rare accident that killed zero people. And yet, what is the public reaction? First of all, hysteria, oh no, our planes could kill us. Never mind, 100 years of experience with commercial aviation. And then second of all, herding. We need to go and shut down a whole bunch of planes while we inspect them all. Yeah, it's, it's all pretty right. funny. <laughs> I mean, could, could we do like a spot check of 10%? And if we don't find any pro additional problems with those 10%, then we say statistically that's good enough. No, of course not. Every plane's got to be checked. We can't just go and say good enough seems really unlikely. Even though that is what a reasonable person does is say, look, is there some reason to think that this problem is anything more than in a really rare fluke? Well, actually, last night for the first time in 20 years, a home in my neighborhood got robbed and now I'm getting a pile of emails. We've got to form a neighborhood watch. And I'm thinking, or maybe this is once in a 20 year thing and it's a shame, but it's not worth changing our lives over. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Uh, the whole airline thing. I think I saw a post where it was like in the last like five years or more than that, there was like zero American airline crashes. Yeah. Yeah. So hysteria, something bad happened. Like We need to get really upset. Anyone who doesn't get upset wants people to die in airplane crashes. You, know, you may have seen the Remy YouTube video. People will die. Uh, great, just a hilarious song making fun of this. And then the hurting of we all have to go and converge around doing a big thing. We can't just say, eh, whatever. Yeah, that we can't criticize the popular view yeah. and that to frequently join in chorus of calling for action is like mm -hmm. part of hurting, right? Yep, that's right. All right. In the book, uh, the first essay, you talk about how 9 11 led to people calling for blood and how this led mm -hmm. to the Iraq mm -hmm. war, which possibly led to the mm -hmm. Syrian wars. Syrian civil war, ISIS, refugee crisis, Brexit, or Trump. 
um, which I agree with. Um, and I even you, you seemed to, uh, it seemed like you were pretty calm. I was only three years old, so I have no memory of yeah. this. Uh, funny story. My mom, uh, she was actually taking care of me. She actually had the TV on. She actually had it on mute because I was, I guess, like being a baby. Mm -hmm. And she was watching the news, and she was like, "Wow, that's a crazy movie." <laughs> she couldn't <laughs> believe that was happening. Uh, you wait. You said it was a crazy movie, or she said it was a crazy movie. No, she said a crazy movie. She, she had a mute, so she didn't. Have, she, she thought it was like kind of like. Um, ah, like, okay. Ah, yeah. so she didn't realize it was the news. Yeah, I thought it was news embedded within a fictional story. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, so I would say it's pretty hard for people of your age to realize what happened, but I was woken up by my in-laws about nine thirty that morning. <clears throat> and they, my mother-in-law said, you know, you didn't let your wife go to work, did you? And I'm like, oh, oh, oh yeah, I'll let her go to work. Why would I let her go to work? It's like, well, weren't you up watching the news to make sure there weren't any terrorist attacks? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> right. But yeah, so um, I, within a very few, a very few days, uh, George W. Bush was on TV saying, we're this is a war on terror and we're going to do whatever it takes. Uh, and uh, there was the first invasion of Afghanistan, where at least they had some connection between the attacks and the ruling government, although it was not directly done by the ruling government. That's what they all say, but uh, nevertheless. And then, of course, there was the subsequent invasion of Iraq, where U.S. intelligence really had nothing other than we think that they have some weapons of mass destruction, a term that's deliberately engineered to make people think it's nuclear weapons, even though it's not. <coughs> <clears throat> and then, as you know, uh, so with Iraq, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein gets uh, gets defeated, but the U.S. goes and puts in another government that becomes a close ally, uh, ally of Iran, and then there's a giant civil war with ISIS, and then finally things settle down, and there's an attitude of, yeah, well, things worked out in the end. I'm like, that's ready to working out in the end. And Afghanistan, Taliban's back. So that's what the U.S. accomplished by acting rashly. Yeah, it was funny how you said that uh, your in-laws called you to not let your wife go out. Like, like, you didn't let your wife go to work, did you? Like, like yeah, do you think I wake up every morning before and watch the news to make sure there's no disaster happening? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because, um, well, I guess there's more sense to it for my family. Cause we, live, we live right across the river, mm -hmm. like, you know, Union City, Jersey City, we're from yeah. that area. And so my dad called my mom was like, don't, because she was actually going to start applying for a job that day. Like, actually go out the old-fashioned way. Yeah. I actually remember when I told Robin, he hadn't heard he'd been teaching and he looked at his watch to see whether it was April Fool's. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, September 11th isn't April 1st. <laughs> One of Robin's many lovable traits. But <laughs> Yeah, so I had no memory of it, but I have to admit, if I was 18 years old to my age right now and with no hindsight, I would have registered to the Army or Air Force because it seemed yeah. like the worst thing that have happened on American soil. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it was, but, uh, you know, staring and hurting, there's no interest in, or look, you want to do something. What's your plan exactly? And like, what will happen? What is, what, in, what has happened in the past when this occurs? Like, I mean, you know, there, you know, at the time there was a lot of wishful thinking while well, we remade Germany and Japan. All right. Are the American people willing to go and occupy Iraq and Afghanistan in the same way that they did Germany and Japan, which means no democracy for 10 years and, your opponents just get arrested and like you just remake their countries. Are you ready, ready for that? Uh, no. All right. Well then what's your plan? You don't have a plan. Do you? You're angry. It's not a plan. Yeah. So I guess how, how, how would you stay calm 
during these crises. Because even one of my favorite writers, Christopher Hitchens, went down yeah. deep end <laughs> and supported um, the invasion of Iraq. Strongly. Yeah, I mean, I'd say Hitchens, of course, has a long history of at least claiming to be outraged and irate. If you read his Wikipedia article, he's never been calm about anything, as far as I can tell, or never was. Um, I mean, for me, I would say that you know, I was I was once a normal human being. I used to have the same reactions as other people, but intellectually, I came to realize that these were very bad reactions, and I just made a lot of effort to not get worked up, to stay calm. Part of it is I don't well, view things. I don't consume news and forms that would actually get me upset. So, for example, I don't watch televised news. I don't. I avoid reading even daily stories. Uh, if I want to learn about any current event, I read the Wikipedia article. I try to get some emotional distance from it to understand what's the background, what's actually been going on, what's verified, what is just latest reports are saying. So I try to do all those things. Uh, but you know, a big part of it is just trying to exert self-discipline the same way. Like, how do you get thin? How do you lose weight? It's like, well, one step at a time, just stop going and indulging. Think, be mindful about what you're eating. Similarly, be mindful about what you're thinking. Be mindful about your reactions. Be mindful about what kind of information you consume. Try to consume it in the driest possible form. I also say, you know, read, you know, just get some perspective, read history and realize, wow, there's 10,000 things that were worse that have happened. There were a bunch of things that probably happened on earth that were worse that day in term directly. You know, 9-11 is significant primarily because of the reaction, not because of the event itself. Yeah, it's true. Even my family in Peru know that the significance that Lionel Levin had on foreign affairs and foreign policy. Yeah. And it's not because it's, uh, it's partly due to the, the fact that people died, but also the fact that it just changed foreign policy for the, la yeah. for the last 20 years. Yeah. And so, you know, a powerful country can have a large reaction to something that is small and often does. So one of the things you say when I feel like was very powerful was that um, it's never asked what is appropriate proportional response to crises and said sides embrace action bias, rushing to do something, failing about wildly, then gradually losing interest to next crises, which I feel like is exactly what happened on 9-11. Yeah. yeah. So action bias is the general psychological tendency to think that you should do something in response to things. He's like, well, what else would you do? Here's another idea. Stay the course. Stay the course. This is actually how I end every department meeting that I'm in. Is there anything else? And I just raise my hand, stay the course, right? You know, what does this mean? Means that if you've adopted safety procedures that get you one accident every 20 years and you think that's optimal, don't change your policies just because there's an accident. It's like, well, we've accepted one accident for 20 years. We think that's a reasonable trade-off. So if that's what happened, then we said, all right, fine. If you start getting accidents every one year, it's like, okay, we've made a mistake. We need to get, we thought that we were getting accidents every 20, we're getting every one, we need to adjust. But the fact that anything bad ever happens is not a reason to revise. The best way of thinking about any kind of precautions at all or any kind of risk, uh, risk assessment is, well, what do I think is going to happen if my plan works? If your plan is zero bad things will ever happen again, then it's like, wow, you are probably greatly over, over cautious. There's this old econ joke. If you've never missed a plane, you spend too much time hanging out at airports. Similarly, if nothing bad ever happens, it means that you must, you're probably pouring a crazy amount of resources into risk avoidance. 
it's better to go and have a more moderate approach, which allows you to enjoy the good things in life while also tolerating some risks because yes, life does involve risk, of course. Yeah, it's like the fallacy of the mercy, like you say, in open borders. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I mean, like, like yeah. So, you, just to be honest, since you mentioned that topic, it always amazes me whenever there's any news incident involving a single immigrant. People email me, "Has this changed your mind?" It's like, <laughs> no. Like, I my my position was never immigrants will do zero bad things. My position rather is immigrants are human. Humans do bad things all the time. If you let in a lot of immigrants, then a lot of bad things will be done by immigrants. And that's fine because we need to go and put this in the broader perspective of all the gains of immigration, you know, as well as it doesn't make sense to go and ruin the lives of a million people because there's a thousand bad apples in there. And so you know, do, do bad, do very bad stuff to the thousand bad apples and leave everybody else alone is normally the wisest approach. But it does just astound people. It's like, you're so dogmatic. One more uh, you know, person got mugged by an immigrant. You should change your mind. Like, well, how many people would get mugged by immigrants in a system that was functioning well? If you say zero, it's like, no, that's, that's a system functioning perfectly. But no system in the real world is going to function perfectly because guess what? The inputs are we flawed and perfect human beings. Think about the real world and the real trade-offs that we actually face. That's the sensible approach. Yeah. So on to your next essay, the identity of shame. I've noticed I've fallen for this where it's offending other EA, mm -hmm. like let's say Sam Bankman Freed. Mm -hmm. uh, you say the main danger of identifying a large outside group is that you will regularly be tempted to, uh, to commit mm -hmm. to commit the villainous act of standing up for the Kruger's villains. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you say to avoid defending the evil or the bad group, you, you take certain steps. Uh, where are these steps? So the main thing I say is never identify with any group that is both large and non-selective. Why? Well, it, you know, so if a group is large and it's non-selective, then just based upon human nature, there's going to be some bad people in it. And if you get really attached to that group identity, when those people do their bad stuff, which you can just count on as a matter of statistical law, you are going to be strongly tempted to somehow say, oh, it's really okay, or you have to understand, let's contextualize this, man, right? That kind of garbage, right? I say, no, don't do that. Like, be a scrupulous judge. Don't show nepotism towards someone just because they belong to this group. Now, this does leave open two other possibilities. So, like, you can identify with a small group. Small group, you there, there isn't much reason to think there's going to be a bad person in there. So, I've got four kids. I don't think I'm going to raise any axe murderers. So it's not a big deal for me to identify them. Or similarly, if it's a selective group, it's one where you can only be part of this group if you don't murder people. All right, well, then that's good because if you murder someone, you're out of the group. So then I don't offend you. But in the real world, as we see, people do routinely identify with large unselective groups, which can be an ethnicity, it could be a religion, uh, could be a political movement that is not very selective. Uh, U.S. political parties are funny because they don't have any procedure for expelling people from the parties. So a lot of political parties on Earth, there's a way of kicking you out and then they can wash their hands of you. But you can have Republican David Duke. It's like, what can we do? He's making us look really bad. We can't do anything. He's just as a Republican, he's a Republican. There's no formal procedure for purging him. Yeah, yeah. You say the best way to guard against the lack of strictness in groups that don't excommunicate is to define your large selective group in period sexual yeah. Um, terms. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think like if you want to keep your group clean, then you've got to be really willing to kick people out for being bad. 
Yeah, so I mean, I've, I've, you know, since I was a teenager, I've had all kinds of what I would do if I was Pope. And it's like, yeah, well, I hand all the child molesters over to the authorities with full documentation and I excommunicate them all. And I come up with a new infallible doctrine saying they go to hell and can't be forgiven. That's my change. Ex cathedra. Yes, I know all the stuff about what it takes to be an infallible pronouncement. As Pope, I'm prepared to do that. Right? We like, we clean the stables. There's a child molester, zero tolerance. They're not even Catholics anymore. They're the damned, and they all, and they go to prison. The end. Right? And it's like, what if the hurts your image? Like, if it hurts my image to go and turn over all the child molesters, then I'm just going to take that hit. But I think that my conscience will be clean. What's the point of being a pope if you can't have a clean conscience? Come on. <laughs> Yeah, you say instead of to instead of instead of identifying with liberals, conservatives, you should identify with liberalism or conservatism. Uh, yeah, what are some identify examples? with the principles. Yeah, the principles. Uh, what are some samples of both sides of the political spectrum you've seen people fail by defending their fellow political followers instead of defending their values? Gee, I mean, it'd be almost easier to come up with examples the other way. <laughs> so, you know, like, all right, so easy target, but comes to mind, all right, Trump. There's a long list of things that he didn't said that people, like Republicans would not have favored before he did it. But once he did it, he's like, well, he's our guy. So let's back him up. Maybe some of it is just to bother other people. A lot of it is like, he's our guy. What kind of a person would I be to go and say, oh, no, like he's crossed the line and he's no longer a part of our group anymore. He's like, well, I mean, he joined your group pretty late. No, no, no. Let's forget about all that. <coughs> uh, so that would be just enough, you know, pretty obvious one. Um, you know, so you can go back to, let's see. I mean, obviously there's, you know, things that Trump didn't get in much trouble for, you know, running massive deficits, going into COVID hysteria. Every Republican who says that Fauci was terrible, well, gee, who was the president who appointed that guy again? I can never remember who it was. Oh yeah, it was Trump who appointed Fauci. Okay, so, and how is it, is it not his fault, whatever bad Fauci, thing Fauci did? Come on. And of course, same thing happened under George W. Bush. Uh, there were very large increases in federal spending under him. Right. And this was, and, and it's like, well, that doesn't really count, or you have to understand that we got to contextualize this, you know, latest buzzword. We got to contextualize everything. It's like, yeah, like, how about we contextualize everything? Uh, so I just give you a pile of additional information, but you know, for any context, I can give you a broader context than that. We can give a broader context than that. So on ad finitum, how about we just hold people to basic common decency? Mm. Yeah, I got you. Uh, on to your next essay, manifest manifestations of weirdness. Uh, I, I didn't realize this. I guess I fall into um, a weird person. After all, I do fall into manifesting number one, saying unconventional things. I noticed when I got my friends or they're asking, what kind of book are you reading? And I was like, I don't want to tell you guys. It's too controversial. <laughs> this controversial book I read was Tyler Cowan's Big Business, which is about defending big businesses. Sure. And I get a bunch of hate about that because, you know, my friends my age are like left-leaning, hate, mm -hmm. hate Amazon, but buy from them all the time for some reason. <laughs> uh, but mm -hmm. yeah, uh, Ultimate Manifestation number three, the integrity of good, where people start with reasonable, even popular verbal premises. But are they surprised that the, the world, but the world by trying to be their by tr by trying to bring their behavior to strict conformity with these premises? Some examples are the effect of altruists, the vegan, mm -hmm. savior abolitionists. Um, how does one go about this about manifesting manifestation number three of uh, sticking to your integral good? 
And I, I mean, once again, I would compare it very much to how do you lose weight? You can have some general principle of reduce calories, increase physical activity, but that by itself is not going to make you thin. You've got to be highly mindful. You've got to be thinking about it saying, right, well, here's the thing that I'm about to do or say, is it consistent with the things that I have said are the principles that I'm following? Right now you might learn that your principles are dumb when you actually try doing it. Like if your principle is say, like, you know, safety is, is an absolute priority. It's like, huh, well then why am I driving to the movies? If safety is an absolute priority, I could have, would have been safer if I just stayed home. So, right, well, maybe that was kind of a dumb principle. Uh, but this mindfulness, you know, seeing like it's like actions, statements, you know, they are going to be consistent or inconsistent with principles that you've stated. So uh, just to go and double check and think, well, hmm, is this the thing that would be implied by the principle or not? All right. So what are some good reasons for acting normal? For acting normal? Um, well, I mean, of course, uh, normal people tend to like you more. That's good. <laughs> life is easier and people like you. So obviously true. Uh, yeah, so there's that. I mean, it's just easier to go and have common interest people interest with people when, when you're normal, because like, you know, what are the odds that another random person likes baseball? Pretty high. What are the odds that another random person likes superhero role-playing games? Pretty low, right? So that is one of the drawbacks. Uh, but a lot of what I emphasize in the book is you know, not just being reflexively opposed to what everybody else is uh, is in favor of, but rather thinking about, well, first of all, like maybe the majority is right, but if you think the majority is wrong, it's like, so how can I go and do what I think is right at the least cost to myself? And that's one where talk a lot about, well, first of all, it doesn't really matter what strangers think about you because it's a big anonymous society. Um, I can't tell you the number of times my dad has told me, Brian, no one else is wearing shorts. And it's like, okay, well, are they going to go and attack me or put me in jail for wearing shorts? These people don't even know me. What difference does it make what they think? And my dad's like, what do you mean? Like, you should just care about what total strangers think. Uh, no, uh, it's not important what total strangers think. If they happen to be correct and you're wrong, then yeah, be care about it. Not because a lot of other people disagree with you because they know something you don't. Um, now, I also say, look, if the people that say your boss uh, disagrees with you, that's a more serious question. You don't want to upset him because a lot of your success depends upon that person. Uh, so I do say to investigate, well, what would happen to me if I were to go my own way on this? And uh, a bit nice part about modern anonymous societies is often the answer is just nothing. Or someone that you aren't aware of doesn't like it, but doesn't say anything. I was in Japan first a year ago, and from what I can tell, no one look you know, even no one definitely no one went and complained about me when I was not wearing masks in public places who weren't legally required to, but ninety five percent of Japanese were. And when I mentioned this, people said, "Well, you have to understand the Japanese show their disapproval in very subtle ways." And my action was, "If it's that subtle, I don't care. I don't care." Right? Like that's an awfully selfish attitude. Like, well. It's not a selfish attitude because I've looked into this. I'm right. They're wrong. And I'm trying trying to help them in the process of doing the right thing. I'm an example of someone that is acting based upon better information than they seem to be doing. Gotcha. So I guess one of your most more controversial essays in this was uh, bioethics, Tuskegee versus COVID. Ah, yes. Yeah. You say the COVID vaccine experiment or more of like lack of it 
was worse than the Tusky experiment. Uh, how come? Yeah, so there's the infamous to see experiment where, uh, contrary to what you may have heard, they did not deliberately infl uh, infect anyone with syphilis, but they went and got a group of black men, some of whom had syphilis and some of who didn't, and then they randomly decided to only treat half while claiming they were treating them all, and they just watched what syphilis did to people. All right, so uh, this did indeed become, once the facts came out, a basis for modern human subjects review, and... I've even had people who are involved in this go and say, do you under, do you know about the Tuskegee experiment? Yes, I know about the Tuskegee experiment. So I have two things, one minor and one much bigger. The minor thing is what they did in the Tuskegee experiment was already illegal. It is illegal to go and tell someone that you are giving the medical treatment and they're not doing it. There's no need to come up with any additional rules or laws. You could just to go and enforce existing law of fraud. Uh, so that's step one. It's not like this showed the need for this new stuff. It rather just showed that they the law was ignored. But the real reason I talked about it is that these uh, the, the law, human subjects rules inspired by Tuskegee have become an argument for preventing a wide range of extremely socially helpful experiments, even when people are totally informed about what's going on. Why? Because there's a bizarre doctrine saying that you can't have informed consent about something new. Which means that, for example, you can't have informed consent about being, being infected with COVID when COVID starts because it's a new disease. And it's like, well, how about you tell them this is a new disease? We don't know what its effects are. Do you consent to that? And official bioexposition is no, that's just not doable. Which means that it was not possible to do what would be called uh, challenge trials for COVID. It was not possible to go and speed up the testing. The ethical kind of testing, so-called, under the bioethics rules, is we can randomly assign, uh, randomly either give or not give people an experimental vaccine, and then we can go and wait for them to get naturally sick, and then go and compare the sickness rates that occur from natural sickness. It's like, why is that the okay thing? Like the vaccine's also new. You don't know. Like, like you could say, well, it's a vaccine. We don't know whether it's bad side effects or not. It's like, no, that's okay. Why? Well, because other people have done it traditionally. It's all arbitrary, all made up, and slows down the progress of, you know, slow down the progress of that vaccine by a couple of months. And if you just go and multiply the harm of slowing it down by a couple of months times the number of people affected, it is many hundreds, or I don't remember what I say in the essay, probably thousands of times greater harm than was ever done in Tuskegee. So the laws are crazy. We already had perfectly fine laws saying that you have to get people's voluntary consent to be part of something. And that's it. That's enough. No additional rules saying that some things can't be consented to because we haven't don't have enough experience with it. Yeah, that's the one thing that kind of annoyed me about the FDA is that they spent, like you said, six months yeah. waiting for not in a controlled environment, but just naturally just out and about people yeah. waiting to get infected. Yeah, I mean, it's basically, it's all about, we don't want to get our hands dirty. We can inject people with disease. We can inject people with a vaccine and then wait for them to wander around and then compare the rates of sickness. That's okay. But, so you just understand what the trade-off is. If you go and you know, the way that they did it, you inject them with a vaccine. It so you give them two injections, two weeks apart, two weeks to kick in. So basically starting a month after you inject them, you just go and follow them for a few months. Then you compare the infection rates and the death rates and everything else. All right. What would have been better? 
what would have been better would have been to have given, you know, you know given people, you know, either give people or don't give people the vaccine. And then right after the two week period when it's kicked in, you deliberately infect everybody or at least deliberately expose everyone that, that is in your sample to the disease. And then in, then you don't need to wait three months for random bad luck to infect them. You immediately see what the infection rates are. You immediately know how well it works. And then you are ready for an emergency approval in a, in a matter of six weeks instead of three or four months. That's what we lost all because of these idiotic scruples, which did come out of the, the Tuskegee experiment. Yeah, it seems like the like like in a util utilitarian lens, the COVID nineteen mm -hmm. vaccine experiment resulted in more deaths and more more hospitalizations. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's the utilitarian one, but there's also like whatever your human rights concerns are. What happened to you? Give you know, you you tell people this is possibly high risk. We don't know. This is an experiment. It's new. This could kill you. For all we know, do you still want to take the chance? And if they say yes, that uh, under standard you, uh, you know, English law is more than good enough. And yet, because of the Tuskegee experiment, people declare that it's not good enough, even though obviously the Tuskegee atrocities would never have occurred if this normal law that existed at the time had been followed. Yeah, so it seems like we don't really need to, like, so you're, uh, you're making the case that we don't need bioethicists then. Well, I mean. I have no, you know, if you want to go and be and someone who studies the field and writes about it, great. I mean, what I would say is you know, a good bioethics would just agree with me on this stuff. I, I did actually hear people saying it's only the ones that are on TV that are bad and like the real ones are actually okay. It's like, all right, maybe. But anyway, the field is, the field is bad and has caused great harm, whatever is actually going on in terms of the individual people that work on the subject. Yeah, I remember I was going to actually sign myself up for the COVID vaccine experiments, mm -hmm. trials. Mm -hmm. But then like, they were like, oh, you, you won't know whether you get vaccinated or not. And I was like, I better, I better like, you know, and it was already towards the end where it was like, if you get, if you get the placebo, you still have to, you can't get the actual vaccine after you have to wait out throughout, throughout the trial. Uh, versus like, if you said what, versus it was feel like how you said, you just get exposed to it. I would have been more open to it because then I could just get the actual vaccine immediately. Yeah. And on top of all this, bioethicists have also come up with this insane idea that paying people for a high-risk thing makes it involuntary. Like, what is wrong with you people? Like, how do you think we get people to do deep sea fishing and logging and mining and all the horrible other horrible high-risk jobs? You pay them extra money to get them to do that stuff. And you and here's the other thing. So it's totally legal to go climb Mount Everest, something where you could say, like, you maybe it's your personal dream to do it, but as to what the gain to the world is, is, is very hard to understand. But on the other hand, uh, you know, like someone who participates in a vaccine trial, this person isn't just helping themselves, they're a hero. They are speeding things up. They're part of saving millions of lives. So, and yet there's a law saying that they can't volunteer to be a freaking hero or be paid to be a hero. Why not? Yeah, so you also wrote uh, the essay or blog post, Free Will and Behavioral Genetics. Uh, mm -hmm. This is one where I kind of disagree with you on. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you make the case for free will, which uh, you say that there's a varying non-shared family environment. Uh, first of all, can you share, Can you explain sure. for the listeners non-shared family environment and family environments? Yeah, absolutely. All right. There is the nature-nurture question. People have been arguing about this for thousands of years. 
But um, in the last 60 years or so, there's been a lot of work in a field called behavioral genetics where they try to actually disentangle these. <coughs> All right. Mathematically, uh, here is the way the disentanglement works. Uh, first of all, there's the estimate of how similar would identical twins raised apart be? The number that you get to that for you know, that you get for that from data, that is what is called h squared or a share of variance from heritability. Then there is another thing that they measure, which is all right. Fine, what would be the what would be similarity between unrelated siblings raised in the same family from birth? Right, so that's called shared environment, and that is. Um, you, know, you know, shared environmental variance, and that is represented by something called C-squared. And then finally, uh, non-shared environment is everything else in the universe. So there is the part explained by heredity, part explained by upbringing, and finally, there's everything else. What's everything else? Everything else is all that, you know, is just, you could think about it as just an unknown, or it's just a residual term, but it packs in basically everything else that you could possibly imagine, everything that is that is beyond both nature and nurture. So one thing would, that would be packed in there would be things like, well, one kid randomly makes some friends, another kid randomly makes other friends. So even they grow up in the same house, they don't have exactly the same friend group. Sure, you've got stuff like that. Or one randomly gets sick in the womb. The mom randomly catches a disease and then you've got a worse prenatal environment. That would be a environmental difference, but it wouldn't be based upon upbringing because it's not shared by siblings. Right now, this non-shared uh, variance, what's interesting about it is that you can look at identity. We know that it's actually not only real, but pretty big because identical twins raised together are not actually identical on almost any notable trait. Uh, so my first two kids are identical twins raised together. We didn't send either for adoption. And you can see their height is not exactly the same. Their weight's not exactly the same. There's a 10 pound weight difference. Their academic performance isn't exactly the same. Right? And their personality scores of uh, here, they both did the same personality test. They differ a little bit on every personality trait. Now, the point of that essay is not to say that the fact that I didn't go into race together are different proves free will. The point of it rather is this. If we did have a perfect prediction, then people would definitely say that was a point in favor of determinism. So I say, since we don't have a perfect prediction, even if we're identical to race together, that just logically speaking, by basic understanding of probability, that's got to be a point in favor of the other thing. It's got to be a point in favor of free will. Uh, you may say it's a weak point, and I don't think that I say anything more than that in that essay, actually. I say it is a point. Yeah, you just make it a point about that. So I guess the third variable, though, it's genetics, envi um, environment. Shared, like shared environment and non-shared environment. Yep. Non-shared environment. But also... Um, so let's say there's twins, they have varying non-shared family environments, mm -hmm. but yep. they also don't have a control over the non-shared family environment. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. doesn't that not play into free will since they don't have control? Like, like, I, like I said, that category could be anything, but one of the things that it could be is free will. That's the whole point of it. I mean, think about this. So basic uh, principle of probability is you say, look, all right, um, someone says Bigfoot came to his house and you're like, all right, well, if Bigfoot came to your house, had indeed come to your house, is it more or less likely that we would go and see fur in the house? It's all right, more likely. All right, you go to the house you do, and you go and you find some fur and you say, all right, raises the Bigfoot chance. All right, raised it somewhat. If you don't, but therefore, if you went to the house and you didn't find fur, that logically as a matter of the math of probability must reduce the probability that Bigfoot was there. 
That's how it works. Anything that if found raises the probability, the absence of it lowers the probability. All right now, what I say in that piece is if identical twins race together, we're, ident we're literally identical, people would say that's a, a point in favor of determinism. They'll say, all right, fine. But if we don't, since we don't find that, that's a point against determinism. That's all I say. I don't say that it's proof of free will. I say it's a point against determinism. It's a point in favor, a point, not proof. But if you think probabilistically, you stop, you generally stop worrying about proof and you say, well, what, well, you know, what does this do to the odds? That's it. <coughs> Got you. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, so even though the book about um, essays on nonconformism, which I actually bought here from Amazon, it's really cheap, nice. 12 bucks. Nice. I recommend everyone buys yep. it. Yep. And you can uh, also get the book for nine ninety nine. So whichever format suits you best. Yeah. Or, or you could buy them for all your friends, all your conformist friends. They each need to copy the book, right? Yeah. I definitely share it when I, when I finish reading uh, more essays. But uh, so I guess what are some reasons for conforming? Hmm. So you, know, you, you did already ask, like I said, I mean, the big one is people usually do treat conformists better if you aren't dealing. You know, like, so when you're weird, this tends to make people not like you. Um, so I put, you know, put that up there. Uh, and then also sometimes the system is very rigid. So I specifically, I already have a whole book on education. And this is one where even though I'm nonconformist, I managed to get a PhD, I'm a professor, and I did it despite my personality. I did it despite my attitudes. Because my attitude was, was to say, this is stupid, you're stupid, I won't do it. However, I realized pretty early on that the way that our society is structured, there's just not a lot of forgiveness or flexibility for people that want to get a good job and don't have the right degrees. And so I put my head down and I just said, okay, what do I have to do exactly? Right? Do I have to do each of these parts or can I weasel out of some parts? When I could weasel, I weaseled. <laughs> you know, in my last year of high school, I found out, wait a second, you're telling me that I can skip high school physics, which takes 40 weeks, five days a week, and five days a week by doing a one semester, 15 weeks, two days a week physics class at Cal State Northridge. And that will count as much or more as high school physics. And I looked into it like, excellent, excellent. And that's what I did. All right, and that's very typical of me. I'm looking for a way to weasel out so that I can get the same official certification without having to do as much stuff that I don't feel like doing. But then it's like, well, can't you become a professor without going to college? No, you just can't. It's just impossible. There's no way around it. Can I become a professor with just a bachelor's degree? No, you've got to get that PhD. There's no way around it. All right, fine. All right. But when I was doing my PhD, it's like, well, like how well do I have to do in these classes anyway in order to pass? Like, yeah. You just need to get a C. It's fine. All right. I'm not going to put that much work into it. Right. And what about the dissertation? Yeah. Well, you know, like you could go and kill yourself on it or you can go and just do something that's real doable and then get through and then do what you want, work on what you want to work on. Right. So that is uh, one of the main ways that I have conformed is on education. Even there, I have tried to cut as many corners as I thought I could safely get away with. There's always a temptation as a nonconformist to lie to yourself and say, oh, I can totally get away with that. Uh, so which is why I say, like, don't go and talk to nonconformists. Find out out of people that have successfully done what you want to do, what share of them have been able to actually get around it. What share, if you just ask them, will say, yeah, that part turned out to be not important. 
I've never heard of anyone that had any problem with that. And then form your strategy and forge ahead with your life. So I do not encourage people just to defy everything, but rather to keep your eyes peeled for opportunities to avoid the stupid rules that exist. Because every society I've ever heard of is packed with stupid rules. I'm not just like a Chesterton person saying, oh, every rule exists for a reason, or at least presumably. It's like, no, there's too many dumb rules to say every rule exists for a reason. No, or probably. And most rules, have there's no good reason behind them. They're stupid. End of story. And the only question is, what's the punishment? <coughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll look through some of your old like um, lectures on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you, ha you have one that was called Poverty, Who's to Blame? Mm-hmm. Uh, when is that book coming out? <laughs> ah, great question. The answer is, uh, it's still, first of all, it still will come out. Uh, second question is, very gratifying that people keep asking about it because it assures me that there's demand. But third part is, it got pushed down the queue because I just decided I had a much better idea. All right. So the book that I'm working on right now is called Unbeatable, The Brutally Honest Case for Free Markets. I got the idea and I just said, this is a better idea than the poverty book and I can finish it sooner. So I'm just going to work on to write this book first. Uh, so the poverty book, I got about 100 pages done during COVID. Uh, I'll come back to it. Uh, but pro realistically, like six years, eight years. I'm not someone like Tyler who goes and writes a book in a month, which he, he did for one of his best books, Markets and Cultural Voices. He went to a rural Mexican village and wrote a book about that rural Mexican village while living in that rural Mexican village in one month. And it's one of the best things he ever did but I'm not like that. All right. So in the lecture and also the blog post, um, how to serve the poor opening statement, which I think was about a debate, uh, you propose to use the same standard that fight the serving. Uh, yeah. Use same standard that fight the serving poor and undeserving poor. Uh, who are the deserving poor and who are the undeserving poor? Right. So I believe that what I say in that essay is, um, for, you know, first of all, we've got to, Excuse me. Um, you know, we're just just really really stepping back. You know, when you're thinking about you know who's to blame for anything, you know, poverty or what or or what or whatever, you're saying, well, first of all, you know, did they have a reasonable way of avoiding the problem? Right. So that's one very big part. Right. So if you know, so it's one thing to say, well, you could have avoided poverty by working on a fishing boat in Alaska for the last ten, you know, for the last ten years. Like, yeah, well, that's super hard, horrible. So or like you know, so say like it's a way of avoiding it, but it's not reasonable. There's also cases where you just couldn't have avoided it, right? Like, you know, if you're born blind, it's like, well, is it your fault that you're blind? No, you're born that way. There's nothing absolutely you could have done about it. All right. So that is a big part of it is there's some reasonable way, a reasonable step that you could have taken to avoid the problem. And of course, the other one is, is there somebody else that actually went and caused your problem directly? All right. So there's that one as well, right? So, um, so in any case, I think about that in the case of poverty. So there is like, you know, did you have some reasonable way of avoiding poverty? And this is where, you know, like also, so see, I think it's, let's see, this book, uh, remind me. So did I also have the pieces on the success sequence in this book? Uh, this is the book. This is like a lecture you gave. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And a, and, a, right. and a blog post also. Yeah. Right. Um, so anyway, um, you know, once you have this general idea in mind, like, did you have a reasonable way of avoiding the problem? Not did you have any possible way, but at the same time, not one where you could just say, well, if everybody on earth had put me first, I'd be fine. It's like, yeah, well, that's like, you're putting blame on a bunch of total strangers for 
not giving you stuff seems like a very strange standard of blaming others, right? But um, a lot of my thinking here has been influenced by research on the so-called success sequence, which just says, we just go and take a look at the US. We'll see that there is a very easy prescription for being above the poverty line with near certainty. And it's just, you know, finish high school, work full time, don't have kids until you're married. And a lot of people say, well, yeah, of course that's true. But what about people who don't have the ability to do those things? Like, hmm, I think it'd be really hard to not have the ability to do those things. Why? Because American high schools have super low standards. They're basically just grading for effort. So like, you won't get A's just for effort, but you get C's for effort. They'll, they'll pass you along. Uh, in terms of getting a job of some kind, there's actually a lot of work here. So we can, like, the very poor themselves will say it's not hard to get, uh, get jobs in America. And the last one is don't have kids until you're married. Well, look, we've got high effectiveness contraception. So put all those together. It does not seem like it is actually hard to go out and follow this prescription. Uh, if you follow it, you've got about a 98% chance of not being in poverty. You could say it's just a coincidence, but if you think about it a little bit, it's like, this is the opposite of a coincidence. This is pretty obviously, if you wanted to be in poverty, you would just do the opposite of this stuff. And I think that out of people that do none of the three, you think it's over half are in poverty, actually. So just to give you an idea of how serious it is. Um, so, yeah. Now, I mean, again, a lot of this is, of course, directly going against any kind of structural or societal blame for poverty. I'm very happy to say things like, if you've got laws in the book saying that it's illegal for a person to come to your country and shine shoes, you can blame the laws for that person's poverty because the person had a way out until you got in his way. But on the other hand, we're gonna say, look, the very fact that you didn't go into families of poverty and go and make a giant effort to go and educate them on the success sequence, like, well, I think it's just kind of obvious. So like, why is it you're blaming total strangers for failing to give lectures to people they've never met before? It seems like a really low, 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 low level uh, before you're willing to start condemning people for things. You know, I often like, you know, the way that I like to think about this is that we have one standard of blame that we use in normal life and another one that people use in politics. And I say the normal life standards are actually the good standards and the political standards are the stupid standards. So when, what are the standards in normal life? It's like, well, or I suppose you've got a brother who never, doesn't hold out a job and you've let him sleep on your couch a bunch of times and he's got a drinking problem and his girlfriend kicks him out for cheating on her. And he comes and says, it's your fault that I'm, that I have a problem. You owe me a spot on your couch. It's like, no, I don't. This is charity. Despite the fact that you have screwed up, it's you, know, you it is your bad, not mine. And he said, well, look, it's your fault for just being so selfish and not being willing to share the couch. It's like, that is a crazy spar here. How about you or you act like an adult and take some responsibility for yourself, right? And then you know, furthermore, what's pretty striking here is one thing you say, well, that's just sort of your selfish attitude. Suppose you're the neighbor of this person and you're observing this argument between the person and his alcoholic brother. I can see a person siding with either person, but to say, you know, the brother that doesn't want to help for the 17th time, he's evil. That's just a crazy reaction. It's like, can't you, like, you can see it from his point of view, can't you? So how about you butt your nose out and at least consider maybe this person's got a decent point. All right. Now, once you have this standard for individual life, though, um, most rhetoric that we have about poverty in Western countries, other than, of course, for the kind that government's directly causing, namely with immigration restrictions, that's the really obvious one anyway, um, 
just just not make a lot of sense to say, look, if we had just created opportunities for the poor to have better jobs, it's like, otherwise they can go and burn cities down? Like, what are you talking about? That's a crazy standard. Yeah, so you say um, an opening statement of, of debate that uh, starving Haitian children really do deserve your help more mm -hmm. than almost any American. Mm -hmm. If you yeah. have a more expansive view of the proper role of government, you should see a big difference between forcing taxpayers to help starving kids and forcing taxpayers to help irresponsible adults. Mm -hmm. Dot, dot, dot. Yep. If we owe charity anyone, we owe it to people who struggle to earn a dollar a day. But when mm -hmm. the first world governments hand out charity to deserving poor in the third world, get next to nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, foreign aid is about 1% of the budget. Indeed, first world governments actively prevent the world's deserving poor from helping themselves. They make it legal for them to move on to their first world and accept jobs a job from a willing employer. Even if we owe the charity no one, the least we can do is stop picking the world's serving poor while they're down. So a common critique I get of libertarianism is that libertarianism is cruel and uh, inconsiderate, but you're making a case to help the, to help um, like Haitian children. Um, how would you help besides open borders? Uh, what, like, would you be, op would you open for like a, I know like taxation is theft, but what would be some ways of helping like Haitian children or even just Haitian inhabitants? Yeah, so I mean, you know, giving them money might work. I mean, like in general, anytime you're doing foreign aid, I'm always very concerned that you're just going to hand it to the government and they're going to do something bad with it. You know, either they won't actually help the poor, or you know, there have been a number of times when the U.S. was giving foreign aid to two countries each fighting each other, and you'd have to have a pretty strange model to think that none of that money ultimately wind up going to the military to help them kill each other. So, I mean, I would step back there. Um, you know, so since writing, you know, since that debate, I think that I've become more mindful of a number of other major ways that government is causing poverty. Uh, the really big one is the subject of my next book that's coming on three months, which is called Build Baby Bill, The Science and Ethics of Housing. Uh, there I say that there is very good evidence that taken together, all the housing regulation of the U.S. has roughly doubled the cost of housing, which isn't just lowering American living standards in general, but it is also especially bad for the poor because the poor first of all, spend a larger share of their income on housing, and second of all, more likely than rent. So not only are you raising the cost of living for all Americans in general, but you're making, uh, but it's an especially hard hit for the poor. Um, furthermore, there's a bunch of indirect effects of this, things like, it used to be that people, poor people in the U.S. had a really easy way of getting a big gain in their income, which was just to move from a low-income part of the country to a high-income part. It really used to be 1960. Moving from Mississippi to New York City was a good way of substantially raising your income if you were a janitor. It is no longer effective because housing costs eat up more than 100% of the gain for a janitor now. In 1960, housing was much less regulated, which meant that housing was a lot cheaper in New York. And so while there was some uh, modest difference in rent, it just wasn't enough to eat up the gain. So that would be another notable example. Um, but yes, um, I mean, again, the idea that libertarians are harsh and cruel, I mean, you know, like a lot of it just comes down to just reflexively taking the side of someone that doesn't want to help someone else regardless of the situation. So it's just automatically taking the side of the alcoholic brother that demands to sleep on your couch for the 17th time. And it's like, why do you always take a side? And then you know, when people say, well, you have to understand, it's like, like my action is, are you his lawyer? Are you his lawyer? Is it your job to come up with a, as many possible excuses for him as, as you can? No, then how about you do the real thing, which is to see both sides of the question and at minimum say, it's complicated. It's not really my place to have an opinion. Definitely not my place to go and try to force someone to help somebody else. 
right? Uh, but I mean, I do think that there is something to the stereotype, namely that you are a lot more likely to see libertarians just make jokes about the poor, and you know, it's it's dumb because it's like, all right, uh, you know, it it does ignore the reality that sometimes people are poor through no fault of their own. Sometimes they're they're poor through partially their fault. Sometimes they're poor through very much their fault. Uh, just to go and say, ah, oh, you know, like like tough luck. Um, you know, like that is not a very constructive attitude overall, especially if you're saying tough luck with, uh, while laughing, um, and, you know, I will say libertarians probably are more likely to do this than a normal person, uh, just to be totally fair and transparent about it. Uh, but in terms of the fundamental ideas, uh, what I say is that, you know, first of all, you should focus on not directly harming the poor. Right? Just to realize, well, like, are there ways the poor people could have solved their own problem if government wasn't, just wasn't in the way? Right? Immigration restrictions and housing regulations are two really clear-cut cases. Almost no one wants to talk about them. Indeed, I had another debate on poverty with economist David Ballin. And he said, look, I agree with you on immigration a lot. Not totally, but I don't agree a lot. I agree on housing, but that's not poverty policy. I said, look, poverty policy is whatever reduces poverty, Dave. You basically want to define the policies you like as poverty policy while saying that deregulation doesn't count because you don't really care about deregulation very much. So even when you say, yes, it's fine, but you just want to keep changing the subject to something else. And I say, how about we stick to what would be the most effective way of doing it? And furthermore, on the question of should we think of government as the savior of the poor? Well, why don't we just look at what governments really do? Right? And what governments do is there's a package. There's a bunch of redistribution that people love. And then there's a bunch of terrible regulations that cause a bunch of other problems. And I say the, pro you know, the poverty caused by government is much greater than the poverty alleviated by poverty. Um, of course, a lot of what government does is they just prevent you from actually physically witnessing the poverty. So if you don't want to see Haitian poverty, just don't like Haitians in and you don't see it. Doesn't mean that their poverty goes away because they can't come here. The poverty is a lot worse when they can't come here. Yeah. So I saw the debate you had with Peter Singer, um, did mm -hmm. rich pay their fair share and you admit to donating money to affected charities. Mm -hmm. Um, if you don't mind, what affected charities do you donate to and mm -hmm. what inspired you? Like what ethical lens? Yeah, actually I said I said I didn't I, I said something more more precise was that he changed the way what I'm doing. So actually all of my charities in my will. All of my charities in my will. So my current plan is I've got four kids, so I'm going to give each of my kids 20% and I'm going to give another 20% to effective charities. Uh, so the will specifies that, you know, if give will still, you know, still exist, then give it to the top give will charities. If they don't exist, then I believe that I designate philosophers Jason Brennan and Mike Humor as the people that should decide where the money goes. Um, and by the way, of course, you would say, well, what if you live high so you don't have any errands? Like, I'm a crazy saver. I have very high savings rate. I hate spending money. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, in a sense, I literally do just because most things I'm like, it seems like the, tr the like the work of make, of getting the purchase and unboxing it and putting it up is going to be greater than whatever joy I would get from it. I'll just accumulate more money. So, anyway, so I have a lot of savings um, and I'm planning. So my plan is to just let that earn a pile of interest. And then 20% of that will go to the absolutely poor. That's my plan. Okay, but I guess what inspired you to donate twenty percent of your yeah I heard it I guess um mm -hmm. 
You know, like honestly, what got me thinking about this is Peter Singer is filtered through Michael Humor. So I didn't read Singer directly, but when Mike Humor went and explained it, I said, you know, like the way Mike explains it, you know, Singer had a very good point. And what should I do about it? Now, again, Robin Hansen, who has come here before, he has this argument about how if you're going to donate, it makes sense just to sit on it, let it accumulate interest. And then only when you're about to lose control of the money does it make sense to donate. Uh, so uh, there's the true story, Ben Frank. Franklin, who put a small amount of money into a, 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 a savings fund before 1800 with instructions that let it, let it accumulate interest for roughly 200 years. The instructions were followed, and the small amount of money 200 years later was a lot and was able to do a lot of good. So anyway, that's the way that I think about it. I The only reason not to do this would be if you thought that absolute poverty would just be cured by the time that I die. I think that a lot of poverty is going away, but I think there's just going to always be a few really screwed up countries, or at least there will still be a few really screwed up countries with horrible, dire poverty. And so I think that my money will do the very most good if I just sit on it until I die and then have it go for either malaria nets or deworming or whatever seems to be the highest value charity at the time. Got you. So the debate was like, did the rich pay their, pay their fair share? Mm -hmm. And it seemed like I got into a debate about semantics. I guess um, I just, I just want to hear the case. Of, so, like, do the rich actually pay their fair share? Like, do they owe the global poor anything? Mm -hmm. Like, extreme poverty uh, residents anything? I would say that I think the rich pay more than their fair share. I mean, normally people are interpreting this as taxes. So, in, in the piece, I have a lot of arguments about how you know the rich are generally getting ripped off. You know, there are a few rich people who owe their positions to government, but on net. I think it's pretty crazy to think that the rich are net beneficiaries of government redistribution. Uh, they are the ones that are the net losers. Uh, you can go and find particular cases, it's true, where the rich are getting some subsidies or whatever. Even there, I think that you often need to take a closer look, like when people get really mad at Walmart for getting tax breaks. It's like, well, look, do you understand how property taxes work? Normally, there's a, there's a fixed rate regardless of the services that you use, and yet businesses use almost no services so in an actual competitive market where they were paying for these services, then Walmart would probably be paying a much lower rate. So, I mean, I'd say that probably uh, whatever tax breaks that a company like Walmart, Walmart gets are actually just a, a, a fraction of the discount that they would get in a free market. So I don't think they really are net beneficiaries of the system at all. I think that it's a matter of there is a little bit of flexibility in the system so they don't get ripped off as badly as they otherwise would. Um, yeah, so in general, I'd say that uh, the U.S. system, it, is, it does penalize the rich a lot on balance. Um, you know, there are poor people that are suffering too, but they're not poor Americans. They're poor people in other countries generally who are net losers. Um, you know, they're, like I said, with the housing regulation, it's fair to say that the poor lose a larger percentage, but the rich lose a larger absolute amount. Um, so yeah, you put it all together and I'd say that the rich are paying a lot more taxes for far less in services than um, they, 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 you know, if they're using a you know, lower share of services. So um, yeah, and actually, you know, just to be a little bit more precise, uh, the, the way it really works when you go and do the math is that in terms of government benefits, the rich uh, you know, get about the same as the poor. In terms of taxes, they pay way more than the poor. The reason is that while the rich get a lot less of means-tested benefits, they get, a lot, they get a lot more of not only higher education because their kids are more likely to go to college, including public university, of course, but the rich also live longer and therefore wind up collecting more in social security and Medicaid. So that roughly balances out on the benefit side, but on the tax side, there's no comparison. The rich pay 
vastly more in taxes. And why? Like, why is the people that are rich are treated as if they've done something wrong? Yeah. So onto your book, uh, Open Borders. I feel like this was like one of the books that really changed my view about a topic. Um, first off, so, one you, so, part were, so were you already in the Dreamers before or not? No, I wasn't. Uh, All right. I guess. Uh, so what inspired you to write this book? Hmm. Um, here's the story. I mean, I was from you know from the early '90s. I was aware of this general point that arguments for free trade and arguments for free immigration are the same. It's the same basic logic of international trade right out of the textbook. But it was only when I started blogging that I became aware of uh, not a pile of research, but a good amount of research saying, look, logically the same, but empirically, we're pretty close to free trade, but we are light years away from free immigration. And therefore, the foregone economic opportunities of deregulation are way greater for immigration than for trade. So that's what got me onto it. There's Michael Clemens' piece, Trillion Dollar Bills on the Sidewalk. It just estimated, look, how much is the world losing from restricting the movement of people? And it's a crazy amount. And so his estimate was something like, we are losing half a potential gross rule of product by trapping so much labor in low productivity countries. Right. And once I got interested in that opportunity, then obviously there's a whole lot of arguments about it. And that's the sense in which you might say, well, the argument is different for free trade because there's so many other possibilities, uh, possible objections. And something to that, although I think that's overstated because you could say, well, there's political effects of immigration. There's also political effects of trade. Right. So you can worry about that. Or you could say, well, there's effects of the welfare state of immigration. There's also effects in the welfare state of trade. So say actually the parallels are not, again, so different. The big difference really is just the magnitude of the possible gains from immigration are so vast. Right. So that's what got me interested. Now, the problem with the very best research in the world is that no matter how intrinsically interesting it is, it's normally written in a boring way. It's very hard to see people going and you know, normal people going and reading Michael Clemens' articles. Um, so then I started thinking, well, what can I do to go and spread this knowledge more widely? I can blog that might multiply the number of readers, the stuff by 10. Then it's like, well, can I do better? Um, during this time, just as a hobby, I got really into graphic novels and I discovered nonfiction graphic novels like the cartoon history of the universe. And in reading them, I did sort of think, wow, this is really good. It's not just entertaining. It doesn't just provide, uh, convey a lot more information in a shorter amount of time by combining words and pictures, but it's also at least possible to be highly accurate. So in the case of the cartoon history of the universe, when I knew an historical era well, I found the book to be accurate. And therefore I trusted the parts where I didn't know the era so well. All right now this got me thinking, well, could I do this? And I just started playing around with it. I got some comic book editing software and you know, spent a number of years just toying with the idea. And then finally I said, okay, why don't I really sit down? I've been learning a bit about how this works reading about how to write these books. I can't draw, but I can go and combine it with Google images and some notes to the authors and write the script. And that is where Open Borders came from. Once I had a couple of chapters, then I started reaching out to possible artists. And for that book, I was able to get my number one choice in the universe, which is Zach Wienersmith, a Saturday morning breakfast cereal. He is the artist for Open Borders. I was not able to get him for my new book, Build Baby Build, but instead I've got a totally different, awesome artist, different style, but I think people are going to like it a lot. I know I like it a lot. 
I actually had a little contest on Twitter where I showed a few different competing artists and asked people who they like best. And Audie Bronze, who is the new artist on the new book, he won like five to one against everybody else. So I totally believe in his work and I hope that it takes the world by storm. Yeah, it's definitely a very uh, convincing book. To me, like, so you start off the book of World Chapter 1 calling it Global Apartheid, and you make a really good ethical case for why we and governments shouldn't restrict where people will live and work based on mm -hmm. their nation of birth. It's like how laws that, you compare it to like how laws prohibit people from living or working in a place because they're black, they're wrong, or because they're Jewish is wrong, because mm -hmm. they're women is wrong. After all, that's what Jim Crow was, preventing people because mm -hmm. they're black. Mm -hmm. um, can you delve into your ethical argument on why why it's uh, apartheid today? Uh, why shifting mm -hmm. where you live and work? Right. All right. So, of course, apartheid literally refers to the South African system of economic regulations before um, really being basically up until the late 80s, early 90s. Right. And it's important to understand apartheid did not mean that discrimination was legal if you felt like doing it. This is not what it was. Apartheid was a system where discrimination was required whether you felt like doing it or not. Now, why would an employer ever not feel like discriminating? It's like, yeah, well, I want to get value for my money. I want to hire the best worker for the job. And if the best worker happens to be black, I want to hire the black worker. The rationale for the regulations was precisely that white employers are too greedy to consider the fate of the white race. And therefore, we need to make it illegal for them to go and hire meritocratically. They must go and hire whites only, regardless of their performance. Right. And obviously, this also extends to things like who are you allowed to rent housing to? How are you allowed to sell housing to? So, you know, so South Africa was not a system of where discrimination was allowed. It was, it was a system where discrimination was mandatory. And then what do immigration restrictions come down to? It's the same thing. It's mandatory discrimination. What if the best person for the job is Mexican? You're not allowed to hire that worker. What if the best tenant for the apartment is Cuban? Not allowed to hire them. Unless, of course, they get a piece of paper from the U.S. government, a piece of paper which is almost impossible to get. Yeah, I found that very convincing. That's um, exactly what South Africa was. They even had minimum wage laws to prevent mm -hmm. um, white, yeah. white owners from, from hiring black owners because they wanted to... Mm -hmm only hire white workers even though there was yeah, still I mean, like, like this is a striking thing like early on a lot of the early minimum wages only apply to women it's like hmm well what do you think happens if there's a minimum wage for women and not men well i like, guess i'll hire men sounds good right why should i go and hire people for minimum wage when i can go and hire them for a different ones so i mean i've often actually in my labor economics class i said suppose that we had a higher minimum wage for blacks you know what do you think that would do and this is one where almost everyone says yeah that would be bad for blacks it's like, well, if you can believe that having a higher minimum wage for your group is bad for your group, could it be that having a minimum wage at all is bad for low-skilled workers? Can you at least consider that possibility? Can you ponder it without getting angry? Say, hmm, maybe it's a similar argument, actually. I mean, of course, it is a very similar argument. Yeah, one of the, one of the arguments that really messed me also was that gave that these rent and works are contracts between consenting adults and that the government mm -hmm. has no right uh has no right mm -hmm. interfering that was really convincing to me um especially it's that it shows like it's supposed to be being dragged away by ice that's pretty funny mm -hmm. but uh yeah yeah like i don't i personally don't see why a government should it's essentially what essentially what jim crow was like mm -hmm. the government mm -hmm. threatening people from um mm -hmm. from taking a people from taking a job or living somewhere right i mean a way that i often think about it is this why was jim crow evil 
Was it evil because blacks are human or because blacks are American? I think for a lot of people, it's like, no, no, well, like they weren't being treated like fellow Americans. It's like, okay, so suppose they had just never been given citizenship in the first place. Then Jim Crow would have been fine. It's like, well, no, they'd have to be, but if they were physically further away, then it'd be fine. It's like, that is a bizarre moral standard. Why would anyone even think that? I mean, I'd say that the, the actual moral energy of the opposition to Jim Crow comes from the idea they are human beings. It's not that they are fellow citizens and should be treated equally with other citizens. They are fellow human beings and should be treated in the same way of, of common decency that every human being deserves, which is if there's a willing employer and a willing worker and they make it and they want and the employer wants to hire the worker that's between them yeah so um one thing that i feel like somewhat concerned me so as we've seen um recent since like i think last year uh there's been like a huge migration movement towards the border states and towards new york city and one of the arguments you say you make is that transportation is a bottleneck that would prevent the flooding but I think the border cities in New York City are evidence might be might be anecdotal, might not actually be evidence, but more anecdotes against your statement. Because we don't even have open borders and we have tent cities and New York City has migrants that take a large fraction of New York City's budget where they are even doing budget cuts to schools, libraries, health services. Um, what's your response to that? Yeah. Government first passed a law saying they have to spend a certain amount of money and they say we don't have, well, we're running out of money. Okay, idiots, repeal the first law. Maybe. The key obligation is to leave people alone. Right? Helping people is at most secondary, maybe not even permissible. Right? And that's what I would say is you know, the, you know, the what is so screwed up about the, you know, the general approach to immigration is that, sure, if you pass a law saying they're entitled to a pile of government money, then you look at them as, as freeloaders and as a burden. Right? But, that, you know, like, but that is caused by the system where you say that you're going to give the money. Why can't you just do the thing where you say, look, you're free to live here, free to work here, but the, we, like, whatever charity you're going to get is going to have to come from private donations. Uh, so now often this is combined with a system where they keep enforcing the rules against employment. So then it's particularly perverse to say there are a bunch of freeloaders on welfare who don't work. Yeah, they don't work because they like, you know, not only is it illegal, but if they get caught doing it, they'll get deported. So that's why they don't work. Um, but, you know, like European countries, you know, especially Scandinavia, they will have this, oh, poor us standard of how could we possibly take any more immigrants when there's such a burden on us? Like, they're a burden on you because you have a bunch of laws that make them a burden on you. Why can't you just admit that, you're, that the amount of money that you give is ridiculously high and, and, and cut, right? Either cut the amount of money that you spend or, or reduce or restrict access to eligibility while still letting people work. Right. And, you know, so much of it just comes down to it hurts my feelings to see a poor person and not help. Therefore, I don't want them here. It's like, wow, I really wish we could replace you with a hard hearted person who just didn't care because that person is not dangerous to the well-being of a migrant in the way that someone that can't bear to look at you in your poverty is. I mean, the way that people in Scandinavia look down upon the Gulf monarchies and say, oh, they're so horrible. They mistreat migrants like. 85% of the population of, uh, of UAE is foreign born. Do you think they would let them in if they were giving them full access to, the to a share of the oil money? No, they let them in to work, which is fantastic because when they do it that way, they're willing to let in a ton. And that's the most important thing is being let in at all. It's not 
these benefits they receive once you know, conditional bond being there, especially if you don't let many in. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Um, I think I was reading that asylum seekers they can't work for the first, I think, six months, I believe, mm -hmm. something like that, yeah, which is weird because then like you're basically forcing them to be, to be a burden or yeah. work under the books, which most of them yeah. end up working under the books and breaking the law. Yeah, yeah I mean, it would make a lot more sense to say the opposite to say we'll deport you if you haven't found a job within six weeks. I mean, not that I favor that, but I think that that would be a lot better than the way they're doing it. Yeah. So one kind of argument I've heard of people in the um, overcoming bias community is that New York City is that uh, open borders cause a brain drain. Because we even see that in the U.S. Mm -hmm. where people are leaving like the Midwest towards the cities and that's leaving mm -hmm. people behind worse off. Mm -hmm. But they can't have like, access to like uh, good doctors, these people that have good education, like, like, like health care and all that. All right. Brain drain. Important argument. And you know, like you say, the idea is that if people are free to move, then the best and brightest will move. All right. So first thing is we need to distinguish between international migration and intranational migration because intranational, normally everybody's free to move. doesn't matter what your skill level is. But internationally, on the other hand, it is normally vastly easier for high-skilled people to move. So right now, if you see that a disproportionate share of high-skilled workers are leaving Africa, for example, a lot of that is reflected the fact that they're the only ones practically that can leave and low-skilled workers just can't. So it's not a good test of whether there would be brain drain under open borders because right now there's not even open borders for the highest skill, but there's more open borders for the higher skill than for lower skilled. So first thing to keep in mind. I mean, second thing is to say, all right, it's possible what actually happens in the real world and this is where, you know, you know, when we do see cases where there's open borders between a rich and a poor country, like Puerto Rico and the rest of the U.S., yeah, you'll see that more ambitious people, higher skilled people tend to leave. But does this wind up being bad on balance for Puerto Rico? And there you've got to consider, well, there's a bunch of other good things that happen when high skilled people leave Puerto Rico. Namely, they send home remittances, they get business connections, their retirement communities. So this is one where a fair standard to say, well, let's go and compare Puerto Rico to the nearest counterfactual, like similar islands don't have open borders with the U.S. And there I would say it sure looks like having open borders with the U.S. is on net a positive, even if obviously you could probably, you can find some negatives too. And you know, obviously within the U.S., then this isn't, you know, the immigration regulation isn't relevant because they're all free to leave. Uh, probably does show that people who are more ambitious or at least more likely to go to cities, things like that. Um, this is one where you can say, isn't this bad? It's like, well, what is the net effect? Net effect for society is that higher, higher productivity people move to where the productivity matters more. And the result is the world's better off, but not absolutely every part of the country gains from it. Right? And I would think a heart of effect of altruism would be to say, if 90% of the country is better off and 10% is worse off, fine. Right. So that's my, my general view here is there has been a hollowing out of a lot of the U.S., but on, on balance, this is a very positive process where you don't go and make someone who could be a CS genius keep working on his grandfather's farm in the middle of nowhere. Right. Okay. So a common objection I hear knowingly, and I'm sure you hear too, I, th I think you mentioned that you get emails about this, that uh, the most Freeman quote is that you cannot simultaneously have free immigration in a welfare state. Uh, why was Mr. Friedman wrong? Right. The answer is he's not so much wrong as he didn't check whether he was right. 
All right. Here's the thing. I'm sure if I had known Freeman here, like I met, I got to meet him in real life once, but I'm, you know, so I know his son, I know all, I think maybe I think all of his grandkids, maybe at least three of his grandkids. Anyway, I'm almost sure if I had Milton here and I said, well, come on, Milton, supposed to love her state gave everybody a dollar a year. That wouldn't be a good reason to not have free migration. He'd say, fine. All right. Depends upon the total amount of money of the welfare state. All right, great. So it's no longer, you can't have any welfare state at all and still free migration. Now it depends upon the numbers. All right, now let's go and take a look at the numbers and see how severe the consequences are. So in my book, I go and look at the National Academy of Sciences estimates and they just go over the numbers and punchline is that, um, let's see. So by the way, so there was an error in the book and I did correct it in a blog post. So I was overly optimistic for high school dropout immigrants, but for everybody else, I'm still, I'm still okay. All right. In any case, the punchline of the numbers is that the, you know, not, not only high school immigrants, but even uh, immigrants who only have a high school degree, as long as they come when they're young, they are a net fiscal positive. You just go and take the expected value of all the taxes they and their descendants will repay, subtract out the cost of all the services they and their descendants will ever use, it's greater than zero. So they actually are a net benefit for the US welfare state. Would this be different if we doubled our redistribution? Sure, it would give you a different number. Uh, but you've always got to look at the numbers, the way that people make a claim that is clearly mathematical without even knowing the numbers or caring about the numbers, to my mind shows they're looking more for an excuse to not have immigration than to craft a thoughtful and serious argument. If you do think this, go to the numbers. In the book, I deliberately try to find the blandest, most boring source of numbers because I didn't go and say, who's the most pro-immigration person, let's report their numbers. I wouldn't trust that person. Nor do I trust the people who are most against immigration. I tr National Academy of Sciences seems like a pretty good bet for someone that, for a group of people that are, you know, they're just trying to go and do some math, right? Which in general, when you want math done, have the math done by people who love math rather than answers, right? Any particular answers. Um, yeah, now the other thing that I say in the book is that um, there are some demographics where they are net, net, net fiscal negative. So elderly immigrants are, and it also looks like high school dropouts are even when they're young. Uh, you know, what about them? And that's one where I say, look, if sticking to the general principle of borders is gonna collapse our society, then that's a reason to make an exception. On the other hand, if it is a marginal problem, then to say that we are going to break a very fundamental principle of human freedom over it is a mistake. And that's why in the book, I have a discussion with Milton and I say, well, would you say that we can't have free reproduction in a welfare state? There are a lot of people where we know statistically their kids are going to go on welfare. So should we sterilize them or force abortions on them? Again, knowing Milton Friedman, I'm almost sure he would say, no, of course not. Um, there, we should just go and accept the fact that the welfare state is creating some problems, but it's better to live with the problems than to stop them. And that's where I say, yeah. And that's what I say about immigrants as well. Even if they are net fiscal negative, the thing to change is to change the redistributive policies. If we can't change that, then we should just respect their freedom and live with the problem. Not saying to do this, it will collapse our society, but within the range that we see, it's no, you know, it is not worth violating the principle over that. Got you. All right, Jeffrey. Uh, so I think we got room for about uh, two more questions. Yeah, I want to go to artificial intelligence, but... Uh, All right, we can do that, whatever you want. Yeah. So you don't seem to see artificial intelligence posing essential risks 
the effective altruist worry. Uh, I guess where do you guys disagree? I listened to that podcast you had eighty k hours, but I guess why don't you see it? Like I guess things like the paperclip analogy or that Yeah. eventually AI will be have superior intelligence than than humans and will prioritize themselves like how we prioritize ourselves over other animals. And so I guess why don't you see AI being such a big risk? Right. Well, let's see. I mean, here's the thing. Of course, for every major new technology, there are risks. And we have faced those risks. And guess what? Often it's turned out the risks were very real. Right at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, I think you'd have to be kind of kind of short-sighted to say, well, what if countries use their industrial capacity for war? Oh, yeah, that could be terrible. Then they could go and murder people on industrial scale, which is just what happened. All right, so step one is just to admit the obvious facts of new technologies can be used for terrible things. And I think that AI not only could be, but almost certainly will be used for terrible things. Uh, but what we see is that technologies are designed by humans for humans to do what humans want. There's always been a kill switch. The idea that there's that the intelligence is going to get so far ahead of us that we'll, it'll just get out of our control and um, and take over. To me, this really is just fanciful science fiction stuff. And until someone actually shows concrete examples of this thing happening, I'm just going to say, yeah, well, maybe we'll go and... create an invisibility formula. Maybe we'll come up with a way of, of making human being, the human body invulnerable. Maybe there'll be immortality. And so you know, maybe people will be able to fly unaided. Right? You know, so these are, like, like, to my mind, they are basically the kind of stories that greatly appeal to the human imagination. We've had stories like this for as long as we've had stories of human creations getting out of control. You've got the golem in Jewish mythology, you know, just one among many. Uh, so I would just say that, you know, the fact that you can imagine something happening doesn't show that it's remotely likely um, when, you know, well, like the idea that like it wouldn't have a kill switch, there'd be no way for human beings to turn it off. It seems very uh, hard to believe to me. Um, now, like, you know, like people said, what would change your mind? So, yeah. Well, if AIs went and contrary to their orders, went and killed, a per you know, killed a person, right? Not instructed to do so by a human, which I think is, all, is almost certain to happen. Right. It's almost certain that a human will order an AI to help them kill somebody, and that will be a story. But that's not what the AI risk people are worried about. They're worried about AI killing somebody on their on its own on their own initiative. Right. So anyway, I think that is really hard to believe. But uh, you know, do I have absolute proof that it won't happen? No. Just uh, just think that it's very remote risk. Yeah, but it's not remote risk. So that's one of the arguments that EAs make. Uh, I'm not. I'm not a firm believer in AI risk, but is that the only five percent chance or one percent chance? Let's say it's five percent chance. It's worth preventing. Yeah, I'd say that's the same kind of reasoning that has killed nuclear power. What if there's also a 10% chance that it speeds up our discovery of how to prolong human, human life by 100 years? And what, you know, what if AI speeds it up by 50 years? What if there's that? So there's, you know, there's, there's risks. Uh, there, there's you know, some risk of really bad outcomes, some risk of really good outcome. I mean, I mean, just the fact that people seem so worried about this most fanciful scenario of AI achieving self-awareness and doing bad stuff to us rather than the far more likely one of some human beings use AI to do something bad. It's like that one. Yeah, but that's kind of like everything else we already have. Yes, so it is. And that's precisely why that's the main thing you should be worried about.
right? But, you know, so nuclear power, like it is something where based upon downside risk, it has almost been strangled. Had this incredible potential to go and deliver nearly free energy to all mankind. And instead it barely does anything. Right. And why? Because we listen to people who said there's a, that they could, something could go wrong. And like, and here's the thing, the people who say there's something to go wrong are not, are correct. It's just, that's not that it would just be totally overrate that. And we should always be considering the upside as well as the downside. And then the idea of, well, the regulation will give us the upside with no downside. Yeah. I don't believe you for a second. That's not how any regulation that I know of works. Regulation doesn't give you the upside with no downside. It gives you a, like, it goes, especially in the real world, like, they search out any possible downside. And if they can find it, they'll destroy any upside, no matter how large. Why? Because uh, politicians don't want to look like they were uncaring and they allowed something bad to happen. They could have stopped by passing a law. So they'll just pass all the laws they can to make sure that they never get blamed for allowing a bad thing to happen. Well, aren't they worried they'll get blamed for preventing good things from happening? No, because that almost never happens to any politician ever. Last politician who was, people got mad because they stopped a good thing from happening. Yeah, I, I don't thought of it like that. That um, it's like nuclear power. Well, well, Brian Kaplan, uh, thank thank you for for your time. Uh, the new book is "You Will Not Stampede Me: Essays on Nonconformism." You can get on yeah, Amazon. Available, available on Amazon. Click of a mouse, you've got it. You could even have it tomorrow, depending upon where you're living. Right? Yeah, well, I got it. You could have the ebook in ten seconds if you want it. So, yeah, I got it in two days. Yep. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jeffrey. I'm super pleased to be your inaugural podcast. Uh, there's another very well-known podcast where I gave a him start, him start uh, Dorkesh Patel, who does the Lunar Society podcast. So I hope you have all the success of Dorkesh and more. I want you to go straight to the top, Jeff. Thanks, Brian. Take care. All right. All right. Have a great day. You too. All right. All right. Well, fun. All right. Yeah. yeah so definitely. Definitely. Well, you know, once you've got it up, email me and I'll try to get you some clicks and uh, get you launched. All right. Thanks, Brian. Take care. Okay. All right. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. If you want to support this podcast, consider subscribing and leaving a review on where you get your podcast. Subscribe and like on YouTube. And if you are so inclined, consider making a one-time donation link below. Thank you.